I'm Alan Thorpe. And I'm David Rogers, and together we host The Weather Pod. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to help investigate how public, private and academic sectors can work together to produce weather information of value to business and society. Timely, accurate and focused weather information and related services have enormous value across all areas of human activity. It can increase the efficiency and profitability of business, help save lives and improve safety on land, at sea and in the air, and predict the spread of life-threatening diseases. Now, as climate change increases the frequency and impact of extreme weather events, weather information is crucial to build social and economic resilience. Hello, and welcome to the WeatherPod. In the second episode exploring aspects of public weather services, we invited Halle Kutwell, Gerald Fleming and Kevin O'Loughlin to the studio to discuss how the landscape for the provision of public weather services is changing with the growth of the private sector within the global weather enterprise and the way digital technologies are changing the way people receive services. Halle is a senior consultant at the World Bank. Prior to that, she led the Public Weather Services program at the World Meteorological Organization. Gerald is currently consulting for WMO and the World Bank. Prior to that, he was head of forecasting at Met Iron and chaired the WMO program on public weather services for 15 years. Kevin also chaired the PWS program. He is a former state director and national deputy director of the Australian Bureau of Meteorology and was CEO of an Australia-New Zealand wildfire research centre. We started by asking our guests about the distinction between national meteorological services and public weather services, something we touched on in part one. To pick up from the discussion that that Hallie made in in the first part, which really was to go into the development, the history and development of of public weather services. And I think uh, when it was first introduced and Of course, since then and now, particularly, the weather enterprise is undergoing quite a lot of change and development. And I think it's, I'd like to clear up at the start, if you like, um, what exactly do we mean in today's context by public weather service? I suppose I, I, perhaps it's just me, but I tend to get a bit confused because a number of the organisations that we, we are working with Uh, use the word service in their name. So, for example, we talk about national meteorological and hydrological services. Uh, The US version calls itself, with capital NWS, National Weather Service. So that that the word service is used in our business, it seems, in many and multiple ways. And that, that I, I feel, at times can lead us into a little bit of confusion. And the other aspect, I suppose, is... um, is the use of the word public. I'm not quite sure yet fully what is meant or what is implied by using the word public. It could have a number of different meanings, I think. So that's what I'd like us to talk about to start with. And maybe um, inevitably, Hallie, I would like to come to you first to, to see what you think about that and uh, whether it makes sense what I've been saying. Thank you, Alan. Yes, actually, um, because we ourselves who are in the business are so used to uh, the terms that we use, we often neglect to think that this might be confusing to the other people who are not actually from, from this uh, business. A national 
um, meteorological service, national meteorological and hydrological service. There are also different terms used there. That is an institution. That is what we mean by when we talk about a national meteorological service. It is pretty much like if you want to compare it with the health sector, it is like a ministry of health, for example. However, public weather services are actually services that are produced by those organizations. It is pretty much like public health service. It is a service that is produced to uh, be offered to the people, to be used, to guide them in their decision-making, et cetera. So one okay. is in fact a building, the other one is a service that comes out of that building, if you like, put it simply. Okay, that's that's great. You sort of implied that um, these are services for the public. So when we use the term public weather service, it's about weather services for the public, or is it weather services produced by the public sector? Well, weather services for the public. And I think we probably uh, need to discuss a bit uh, further who produces these services and how they are produced. But these are services for the public. And also, we probably need to clarify a little bit what we mean by public, because it is beyond the housewife or the student or the school children. We have got many, many different public. Yeah. That these services could be used by anyone who finds them fit for purpose and they can actually apply to their uh, needs. For example, when we started um, the public weather services, we also said that they, they are often used by um, just farmers for general purpose, general outlook, if you like, or for um, pleasure uh, activities on the coastal regions for um, fishers who are just fishing in the coastal regions. These are not uh, kind of very specialized services produced for that particular client, but they are uh, services that could be picked up and used by anyone who finds them useful and applicable to their purpose. I would take uh, kind of maybe a broader definition in some ways in that public weather services are any weather services which are available free at the point of use and how they're delivered, they could be through the public sector or they could be through the private sector. I mean, I worked myself for many years in front of a TV camera working for the Met service, but broadcasting through a broadcasting authority which had a broadcasting service, which had a commercial relationship with the Met service. So was that commercial? Is it public? It was there for the people free, well, given they paid their license fees. Um, if you look at, say, road weather services, which are not directly to the public, but they support safety by providing information to people who go out and throw salt on the, on the roads or clear snow or whatever, you know, those are all, in a sense, weather services which are provided free at the point of use to the public. And that seems to me a reasonable definition. I agree with that, 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 that it's primarily the, the target audience is the public does it matter who provides the public forecast i mean it's basically information provided on behalf of governments uh, to all aspects of society and so it's it's more about to me it seems to be it's more about the contractual arrangement between the government and a supplier rather than it has to be done by a government-owned supplier it could also be provided by a private company or maybe some hybrid approach um, and i'd like to ask kevin given your experience um, at the very beginning of the, the first kind of development of quasi-privatization in, in New Zealand, and that the Bureau probably had the biggest concerns about their neighbor, nearest neighbor, 
in terms of the services they were providing. What what are what are your views on this today? I mean, obviously things have quite have evolved, and I'm very curious to see what what you think about that now. Yeah, yes, things things have have changed. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing about the New Zealand, it, it's you know, it's quoted as a commercialised service, but essentially it's a it's a wholly government owned uh, company. It was just set up as a company structure, and uh, I, I think at the at the end of the day, um, how the how the forecast actually reaches the public um, is is quite flexible these days, and this is where the private sector. Um, has an obvious an obvious role uh, in in for instance you know packaging um, sometimes they, there may be a, a contract between a uh, as Gerald mentioned a, you know, a TV station and a private company but um, I think the main the main issue is that the um, originator of public forecast I mean it goes back to the functions of of a med service essentially med services were set up and most of their missions talk about things like uh, the safety of life. So that, that takes us into obviously the warning area, but the other things that get mentioned are uh, convenience and uh, economic welfare. And for example, the, the, the Bureau of Met is, um, is in Australia is under, under in the government budget is an economic service. So, um, I think there's the issue of of where the where the um, forecasts originate from is important because they depend on the data that's collected from national networks and then there are international uh, linkages and so on. But the actual delivery of the service, uh, I think, is it's now um, a much more open and uh, flexible. Uh, arrangement, and that's not to say that the, the med services are kind of being pushed out. In some areas, they have become more visible just because of the technology. But certainly, the the, the demand has also grown. You know, Harley mentioned the, the types of of um, variety of users of public weather services, and uh, and now, of course, some of those users want um, more tailored and specialised services that uh, that are best provided by the by the private sector. If I could jump in there, I mean, it, it, it seems <clears throat> from this conversation that the word public is, well, perhaps I can say a, a controversial thing. Maybe the word public is not very helpful in the name public weather service, because actually it's not really specifically, we're, talk, we're not really specifically talking about the public and providing a weather forecast to the public. We're providing weather information to a whole host of people. And maybe, maybe the key point that that's been raised in my mind is the one that Gerald made, which is we're talking perhaps about those that information and that that services that are provided free at the point of use, and maybe that's the distinguishing factor. I, I don't know. I, it's free. It's nothing is ever free. Of course, somebody has to pay the bill, and, and I suppose precisely comes and, back to that too. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you look at um, at websites, for example, I give you four examples. You've got, say, the Metairn website from Ireland, which doesn't have ads. You've got the Meteo France website, which does have ads. Mm. You've got something like a commercial website like AccuWeather, which has ads and you can pay. And you've got something like Windy, which is a commercial, or at least a private sector, a private provider, which has no ads. So, I mean, where do you call public and private within all of that? Um, I, yeah. Or, or are any of them commercial? 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, the private sector might say, actually, the, the national Met services don't provide things free at the point of use because the taxpayer has paid uh, for, for that work. And so it, it, it's actually, again, it's a little bit confusing at times. And, and in a sense, Gerald, it depends when someone who is paying and when they pay along the chain. You know, are they paying for the setup or are they paying for data as a service? I'm sure we'll come on to these points as we get mm. further into the discussion, actually. So so, so I'd, I'd like to pick up, uh, Kevin, you mentioned weather warnings, and um, I'd like to just move the conversation on onto that for a moment. Um, and it, as you say, it's been a, a key um, responsibility of many national meteorological services that they issue weather warnings. <clears throat> and they they often will use the the term that they have the authoritative voice um this phrase is used in the, in the business i think and certainly within the world meteorological organization quite a lot <clears throat> and i i'm again slightly curious and maybe maybe i get too hung up on words but who could we agree on who is what does the word authority mean in the authoritative voice um does it does it arise because the government appoints a sole provider for weather warnings? And is, is, that, is that the sense in which this is an authority? It's the government giving that role for a single provider. And if that was the case, it seems to me it would be better to call these official warnings rather than, um, rather than anything else. But... Um, I wondered, perhaps, Kevin, what, what you felt about that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I think for the word authoritative, uh, as you said, it, it, it primarily appears in the kind of um, literature about public weather services mm. that's written, uh, you know, in the WMO context and so on, rather than with the, um, yeah. with the communication to the public. And I think for the public, it's, it's the word official is the word that kind of um, would be most appropriate, uh, but I, th I think it goes back to, um, the, for instance, the principles of disaster management that, that apply to disasters, you know, other than weather-related disasters as well, uh, and even things like, uh, uh, you know, like like uh, wars and so on, where um, in a time of, of crisis, uh, one of the things that's really important is to where you want the public to do something, where you want people to respond, is to um, not have confusion, not have multiple uh, messages or different messages. Um, one of the things where, where the Public Weather Services program in WMO sort of gained its legs, if you like, in the early days was when a, um, I think it was CNN, was giving a hurricane warning to one of the islands in the Caribbean or some of the islands in the Caribbean. And, uh, and the, uh, the president of the country, after the, uh, the, the event, the weather service you know, came to, to the government and said, look, we, we had our, I forgot what it was, our radar or something was damaged. Um, could we, you know, we need some funds now to do it. And he said, why do we need a weather service? I can get it from CNN. And uh, it kind of <laughs> that hit people that this was going to potentially, if there wasn't clarity, uh, a cause confusion, but also uh, undermine the whole uh, basis for 
um, the international arrangements in place for sharing of data, you know, observational data and so on that go into the models that everyone mm -hmm. needs and so on. So uh, there was that, that aspect. And, uh, but, but I think it really comes back to what the disaster experts say about these things. And that is that you should have a, a single voice. Well, first of all, a single voice. So then it becomes mm. who is the single voice. Mm. And again, in most cases, when disasters are happening, it's the uh, it's the government that gets looked to for uh, you know in, in in countries that are organised at least um, that gets looked to and uh, and and I think third, another element of then of it also becomes the uh, the legal aspects you know, when things go wrong um, the public looks for someone to to uh, blame and uh, and at the end of the line uh, it's usually um, there there are not that many you know, companies who volunteer to take on um, uh, something as, as serious as, say, you know, getting a, getting a cyclone forecast wrong and, uh, and billions of dollars of, of uh, destruction, you know, damages uh, uh, caused. I mean, that, that's a whole new subject, I, I, I guess. I, I can see that point. But, of course, if I'm now a member of the public, to use that mm. the phrase again, um, I'm, I'm bombarded, not quite the right word, with a wealth of weather forecasts and warnings and how do i know what what is a warning what is a forecast i'm looking at my weather app i'm looking at cnn i'm looking at the bbc um it, it's it's quite a myriad of of information sources yep. and the warning uh sits there as 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 something hopefully that's special but but can, i guess could can be confusing for people because these days, particularly with social media, people are often looking at what other trusted colleagues in the public. I mean, you mentioned that it's good that it's a government aspect because of the disaster point. But of course, in some communities, in actually many countries, if you're a representative of the government and you're giving some information, it's actually not as trusted as so-called independent sources of information, particularly yes. in science, for example, independent yes. science is actually highly valued. So I, I think it's quite a, a complex, almost uh, sociological question about, about trust, I suppose. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. But actually on the, on the, sociology, uh, on the sociology side of it, it's, it's really interesting because when you look at uh, how people respond to any kind of warning information, regardless of whether it's weather-related or otherwise, you need you have a you, know, you have somebody provides the official information, we'll say, but you don't respond to that. You, you there is an awful lot of other information you need before you decide, and this is a psychological issue, right? People will not just act on th that piece of data; they will or information. They need then to ask their neighbours. They need to look mm. search other sources. And what's important then is that those sources are kind of uh, supporting that. There has to be an, more of an integrated approach, right? In other words, it's not, not very helpful when a company or the government or whoever stands up and completely contradicts the other information that's being made available. It doesn't help anybody. It really hurts because then people don't, don't take action. And, and I think that's a bit missing in many countries that you're not getting that... Um, 
corroborative information you need. It isn't really just one source. That doesn't work. I mean, that's not how people behave. I can jump in here. I think the origin of this word authority or authoritative, uh, and some people now misinterpret uh, it to authoritarian, which is not supposed to be <laughs> authoritative, is it came, it really, it came at the very, very earliest stage of public weather service program in WMO, where we were approached, we, I mean, the, uh, those of us who worked in this domain in WMO and the, all the experts outside, we were approached by countries exactly for the reason of public confusion and confusion of the people, public, whatever you want to call public. Um, the fact that, um, in fact, we had to go and talk with uh, a few of the international broadcasters to say, you need to align the warnings. First of all, the principle was born that warnings is the business of the uh, national authorities, the government. You can have forecasts, everyday forecasts, many people put it out fine. But when it comes to matter of life and death, it is has to be the government uh, taking responsibility for that. And now that government can decide where it gets that warning. That's a different story, but we will not get a separate warning from CNN, a separate warning from BBC, which may not be quite in agreement, a separate warning from the neighboring country, separate warning from our own Met Service. So this was the very beginning of why this word was coined and why it was born. But as uh, I think Kevin said, it is not something that of course is shared with the public. It was uh, uh, with the people who were putting these ideas in place and making in fact some kind of rules, if you like, which uh, they were hoping everybody would abide by. And that is, there should not be conflicting information for the people in the case, in serious cases. So that is where the authority comes from. Now, as I said, authority, now we can have a long discussion, who is that authority and who gives them that authority? But there should not be conflicting information for the public. There are certain, I would call them kind of national infrastructure, including the information infrastructure, which should be provided by government. I mean, we think in terms of roads and police forces and all that kind of thing. But I think there's a certain amount of information which government is obliged to provide to its citizens um, in order to allow them to both keep safe and, and keep themselves economically active and raise their families or whatever. Um, you know, and it would include weather information in that, particularly warning information. I just think it's a fundamental thing that's needed. Um, and it, it, it is linked back to public safety. I mean, if we look at aviation, as we all know, you know, there's only one organization will issue a TAF for any given airport. Uh, we won't have multiple TAFs and multiple choices for the pilot. They want just one single inf piece of information or a SIGMET for a, an aviation um, area, uh, an FAR. And in the same way, the public really needs, in terms of when safety is required and, and a consideration, just one consistent message, which all of the other agencies and the public themselves can then work from. So you're, you're stressing again the sole uh, provider, if you like. Are there, are there any circumstances where the government might decide to ask a, a private weather company to, to be the sole provider of weather warnings, do you think? Or is that out of the question? I don't think it's out of the question. And, and as we all know, there are some 
unfortunately, some national meteorological services around the world, which are, are not terribly well equipped uh, technically or scientifically to, to do the sort of job, which in those of us, I suppose, in, in the Western world, uh, expect automatically from our national med services. And in those cases, perhaps it, it would be uh, good for the government to, to get a provider from outside to issue the warnings, but under the government's name. And, and the government, I think, would need to have the right to uh, hopefully build up its own med services to take over that that function at, at some later stage. Um, but And I've heard this discussed a few times by people like Harry Otten and that in a very um, um, emotional way, uh, that you know sometimes the private sector can do a better job even when it comes to warnings. And, and we can't really ignore that fact. And we should really always be focused on what's best for the public. Uh, but that's often gets lost, unfortunately. But that, that's this is really comes into something really fundamental. I mean, we we have a, we essentially we're saying the government is the authority, right? So the government hmm. decides, uh, and most governments look after their citizens in some way. They provide health services, they provide weather services, they provide a certain level of capability, and as you've already said, you know the road infrastructure, uh, security, and so forth. Now who actually delivers that is really up to the government. If the government thinks that from a cost-benefit point of view they could contract that out, they could contract it to anybody they, they choose. And today we have a myriad of choices in terms of who could provide a service, a very high-quality service, um, and it's down to the legacy. There's a legacy of having a lot of investment in public sector infrastructure, and we can't overlook that, and we can't really... Uh, ignore it by, by any means but in reality the government has doesn't have to have uh, the bricks and mortar of a national weather service it needs the functions of a national weather it needs a public weather service and that can be provided by a contractor and that contractor um, has got a service level agreement with government to provide those services but the government is still responsible ultimately for how that job is executed and if it fails then you need another another contractor right so there's nothing magic in a way about the the need to invest in your national weather service as an institution it's more a case of that's a legacy of countries which have you know have been doing it for over a hundred and something years and have done it well and therefore it's very difficult to say oh we should stop doing this and we should just you know, go private or something but where it's weak it's not the obvious choice that you would make that public investment in a publicly owned and operated infrastructure. Well, David, let's not forget that that um, governments also, you know, weather information comes from somewhere. It needs a lot of prerequisites. It needs a national observing system. It needs global observations. It needs, um, you know, somewhere, somebody needs to make, uh, you know, numerical weather predictions or um, and, and then disseminate them. So in a sense, there is a, a a back office function that again often is carried out by a national met service but again increasingly the private sector as we know is getting much more capable i mean there are private sector companies now that are running operational global weather prediction models in an, on an operational basis and providing forecasts to customers so uh, but nonetheless they still rely on on the global observing system observations they rely on actually long-term research and development. That's another point that we expect that the public will invest in providing observing systems and 
contributions to satellite programs and weather radars and modeling and all of those things as, as part of the scientific effort which is required and you know in terms of observing systems it's it's the responsibility of the nation where the the, the territory is to do that so you could argue that the public should get something back for that investment and that that return is by the way of public weather services provided free at the point of use however they, those are delivered or through whatever mechanism those are delivered it suggests, isn't it, a little bit of that you need to deconstruct the whole model. I mean, you've got observations. I mean, the, the value chain, perhaps, it needs to be it's deconstructed into its basic components. And and the logic behind that is, well, it makes more sense, perhaps, for the government and a government agency to maintain a particular in-situ observing network, perhaps. I mean, I'm not saying it, it has to, but that would be one way. And the delivery of the services are done by others because that is more efficient or then there's more capability and and you know that i th we we seem to and i would like everyone to sort of comment on this because it seems like we're, we're stuck in with the legacy of where we were and it's very hard to move beyond that and say well you know in a, in the new world in, in a decade or more from now things could be completely different and we somehow are reluctant to accept that there could be a radical change in the way we deliver those public services. Uh, well, I, I think one of the interesting things that's that sort of happened actually relatively recently and uh, and is in the context of of uh, WMO mm -hmm. is the is this you know the, the discussions that have now become much stronger over the last you know five or ten years or so between, the government uh, sectors, national med services, and the private sector, and uh, and on this whole issue of exchange of data, and historically, of course, the the um, big effort put in by the WMO and the member member services was to ensure that observational data was exchanged freely around the around the world, so that we could you know, everyone could run their global models and so on. But the, the significant change that I've only recently become sort of aware of the significance of uh, was that last year, the WMO uh, Congress uh, adopted a new policy on, on data exchange. And, and that now includes not just observational data, but uh, the numerical products and all, all, the, all the products and even and indeed services that are produced by that, that global system. So back to your point, uh, David. You know the the small country which has got li very limited uh, its its uh, services uh, or services capability is limited by lack of resources and people and so on. Will in the future actually have more options in terms of using the the data products that have come, yeah, you know, the the numerical products that are now becoming more freely exchanged. So it is potentially a different model where they don't need to make um, you know, a huge investment in building up a whole uh, med service like a developed, you know, fully developed country, uh, but they may have the capability of actually delivering something to their public because they've got access to these other, other products. So in one sense, uh, I think the, the, uh, the, the, your point about the value chain is becoming, it's becoming more um, enmeshed, if you like, uh, from the observations through to, to uh, products and services, but also because of the, you know, the new earth system approach that it's not just 
the weather, it's the climate, it's, uh, it's the oceans and so on. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I think uh, that this, this actually very nicely moves us on to something I wanted to, for us to talk a bit about, which is we, we've, in this conversation, we've, we've gone, I think, and, and with the developments of the public weather services, we've gone from an idea of a meteorological forecast which of course as a as a you know as a research scientist and professional meteorologist i love uh we've gone from that to realizing that that in fact you know the society the public society etc when they when they have to make decisions they have to factor in a lot of different pieces of information it, it's not just about about the weather um it's it's about lots of other non-scientific and um even you know sociological uh, aspects to what is in the end for their particular use a kind of integrated service you use the word uh, i think um kevin integrated uh, where where really it's bringing together weather information which is just one factor that's going to determine so in- increasingly i can see a great opportunity for bringing together these integrated services rather than just if you like just the weather service and i'm just wondering if in that sort of world where where do national meteorological services fit how much they get involved in in this sort of agenda um, and expand what what they do and I would like to pick up on that. Um, we, we are, I think, moving nicely into this uh, area of impact-based forecasting, which is, as, as Gerald says, a buzzword now. But um, this is the way things are going. And we ourselves, uh, in wherever institution, whichever institution, institution we work, such as in my case, for example, in the World Bank now, we are very, very strongly advocating this idea of impact-based forecasting. But the whole idea of impact-based forecasting is that it takes it away from the sole domain of meteorological services, because we have got so many, as you said, Alan, so many elements now are coming into how we produce the forecast that talks about the impacts and not the uh, scientific or the uh, meteorological component of a forecast, those are, to me, still um, the sole responsibility of meteorologists to bring that aspect into producing a final forecast for uh, the public, for disaster managers, for whoever else who has to make a decision based on that information. But we are now talking about sources for um, information on vulnerability of structures and infrastructure, on vulnerability of people, of societies, of exposure of people and, and assets and elements. So these are not in the hands of meteorologists. These are these exist elsewhere. And uh, as, as parts of links of a long chain, they all have to work together. Various governments, uh, NGOs, uh, volunteers, um, private sector, they all have to work together to bring the different pieces together to produce this impact-based forecasting. And this is where we are moving away from the traditional forecast of we are having rain tomorrow. Okay, now we are talking about uh, we have rain where and what is going to be the impact of that rain. And it is but not every every part of that is not known to meteorologists. So. Absolutely. I mean, you, you stress the, the sort of... Co- 
the cooperation aspect, the fact that people have to work together. Do you think, do you think that we're as a, as a community, perhaps in, in the sense of uh, both the research community, but also the national meteorological services, are they, are they able to do that? Are they good at that, that cooperation concept? I think they need a lot of encouragement. And this is why, in fact, when I was working in WMO, we started this concept of impact-based forecasting, which I think everybody around the table here is now uh, has had a part in it and has worked on it. Um, uh, this has taken a lot of education for our friends in meteorological services, let alone those outside, to try to um, uh, basically change the mindset, change the paradigm that you are a link in a chain and you are not the entire chain by yourself. And some places it is done more successfully, some places we still need to work on it. I wouldn't, I don't say that we have, we are there, no. But when you're talk, talking about the social determinants of vulnerability, it's a completely different field. And to get that connection between those who are responsible for understanding the social determinants, which are often disaster managers in, in many countries, that's what they do. They collect data on people and, and their circumstances. That's an opportunity to really build a much stronger relationship, at least with that sector, within, essentially within the public sector. So it's a direct connection between the public function that we've just been talking about from a weather service point of view and the public function from disaster management or health or, I mean all related to, the, to, to these aspects and there is an opportunity to do that but I don't think we're doing that very well I mean we, we, we make steps in that direction but it's by far from being a well-developed um, community of co-developers this sort of also nicely segues into um, my, my final uh, question and, and thoughts and, and it has to do with service quality and I want to ask whether you think there's a role for government through its nat national meteorological service with it, it through its a government-owned body um, as a regulator or accreditor of all weather services for the public to achieve and maintain you know the appropriate standards um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that maybe Halle first on that one um, yes, unfortunately, this end of the value chain, the services, is where we don't have, we have not developed any standards for, and I don't know if that will ever be developed. We have got attributes for good services. They have to be reliable, dependable, uh, credible. Uh, you have to get them every day. You have to make sure, I mean, you, once you are the public or the user or whoever you are, uh, you expect to have good quality service. However, we have not a definition for a good quality service as such, the way we have got guidelines and guidebooks written on what should be the standard of an observ observing system. We all have got gold standards and different kinds of standards for different uh, observations for uh, and uh, the verification of a forecast sets a standard for what the quality of a forecast should be, etc. But when it comes to services, we are running into a little bit of a um, basically depending on goodwill to stick with these attributes that we have. So um, although in some countries, for example, take US, 
uh, most of the forecasts are delivered by uh, broadcasters who are privately um, um, employed by companies, etc. But they have, for, in, for instance, the American Meteorological Society has a seal of approval and they have to stick with that standard to be really credible broadcasters and that also helps them to be employed. Or in some other countries, maybe the government has a contract basically with the user saying that we undertake that our forecasts are 80% accurate or I don't know, 90% accurate or whatever. But this is this doesn't happen everywhere. Yeah, I, I can see value as, as the meteorological world expands, uh, I suppose, to very greatly, particularly in Europe at the moment. In the US, of course, it happened some decades ago. Uh, I can see value in having some sort of regulation. I'm not sure it should be the National Met Service that does it because they can't be both a player and a referee, so to speak. Um, that, that certainly is not possible. Uh, interesting enough, in, in the, one of my past um, activities, we had an international association of broadcast meteorology, and we were looking at this question of providing some sort of um, global uh, certification for weather broadcasters. And our view was that if WMO laid down the regulation and um, the National Met Societies might be the, the organizations which would, if you like, award the, uh, the certification and the IABM would be a kind of an expert uh, body in the middle to advise and maybe to provide the actual um, judgments, if you like, uh, by, by accessing people who are expert at that business. Um, so, yes, regulation, no for the National Met Services, but perhaps a government regulator uh, is is possible. In many countries, to be honest, it, it's hardly going to be viable because the Met service, the, the meteorological business in that country is just not big enough to justify it. Yes, probably in the UK, in, in France, maybe in Germany, uh, and some of the bigger European countries. But outside of that, and obviously the US and perhaps Canada, perhaps Australia, outside of that, it's hard to see many countries wanting to put the uh, resources into a regulation of, of something which is relatively small in business terms in their country. Although we haven't got a kind of a, a, a system of regulation and accreditation internationally, um, there are some, some positive signs. One is uh, on the official front is the, the WMO efforts on quality management. And that's led to, it, it sort of arose partly from aviation. I mean, one of the challenges in public weather services is it's so diverse and the, and the, the national needs are so diverse compared to, for instance, Aviation was a little more, uh, little more refined in terms of the the critical data. So it's you know, the wind and the temperature and the pressure and and significant weather, and and there is it's easier to set standards there, which are agreed globally. But what the uh, the spillover of the aviation demands for accuracy and, and accreditation and so on led to this uh, approach to quality management, which has extended to public weather services, which is about uh, well, at least in the sense of the competency required by a forecaster who's delivering working in National Weather Services. So I think we probably should draw <laughs> our uh, discussion to a close um, and to thank you very much for joining us on the WeatherPod. And uh, we look forward to continuing our discussions on, on this topic. Thanks very much. Yes. yes, indeed. Thank you all so much for such a great and really interesting discussion. Thanks, it's been stimulating and fascinating.
Yes, thank, thanks. Uh, congratulations for, for the initiative. I think it's great that uh, uh, the work you're doing, Ellen and, and David, to uh, to bring this uh, to the to the wider community and and uh, discuss issues like this and uh, and and uh, enjoyed very much tonight. And, and great to see Halle uh, uh, and uh, Gerald, with whom uh, I did uh, uh, some very close work on this topic uh, over the years. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you from my part as well. And it's always been a great pleasure working with Kevin and Gerald from the very early days of Public Better Services. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Alan and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org.